interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for um, inviting me. Pleasure to be here to see a good many, I was going to say old friends, friends of long standing, put it like that. <laughs> like you, Terry, friend of long standing, but not an, not an old not an old friend, right? Okay. Um, and new ones. So, um, thank you. Um, I had to choose, well, actually, Carl chose this. Where's Carl? Carl chose this topic, uh, Educating for Shalom, eight months ago, and I said, okay. Um, but then when I sat down to work at it, then his description of what he wanted, well, what I'm going to say fits better his description of what he wanted than the title. Though the title is not inappropriate, it's, um, okay. Um, and some of this will seem old hat to some people, and some will, to some it'll probably seem quite new, but I hope that even to those who, for whom it's old hat, it'll be a good review or, or whatever. So what I would like to talk about is this. And that's going to be the core of, the core of my three talks will be the second one actually. Um, reflections on what it is to, to think with a Christian mind and to speak with a Christian voice in the contemporary university. And I mean both of those. I mean finding a voice is just as I've just over the years have learned is just as important as, as the thinking. Some people have the thoughts but haven't found the voice. And, uh, so thinking with a Christian mind and speaking with a Christian voice in the contemporary university. This first talk will be preparation for it, the second talk will be it, and the third will be application. Um, an indispensable background, so it seems to me, for our consideration of this topic is some understanding of the relevant features of the contemporary university. So that's what I want to talk about in this first talk, to take the risk of making generalizations about the contemporary university. I'm going to approach the topic historically or strictly speaking autobiographically. I'm going to talk about how the university has changed in my lifetime. Uh, there will be some of you here who will have tracked the same changes and some of you for you have no idea what it was like. <laughs> so I got my PhD from Harvard in 1956. Uh, 51 years ago. That's right. 51 years ago. So changes over these 50 years. And I happened to think might be the myopia of near history. Nonetheless, that the changes that have occurred in these 50 years have been as dramatic as any changes within the Western University for a very long time. Okay, so one change that I want to get out and then not do much with because it's not clear to me that it's terribly relevant to our topic. But one change has been the dramatic increase in vocationally oriented education within our universities. Um, there's always been a good deal of that in some of our universities, especially the land-grant universities, of which Cornell is, I think, the first. 
Um, they were they were established for the very purpose of giving a certain type of vocational um, education. So no big surprise that it's always been there in those universities. But I think there can be little doubt that um, the proportion of university education as a whole that is vocationally oriented today has increased dramatically over the past 25 years. Now, I discovered that a good many writers who talk about this um, and don't like it attribute this change, the increase in the proportion of vocationally oriented education, they increase it to stupidity or pandering on the part of administrators. Uh, administrators pandering to the public who seem to want this and so forth. Well, yeah, there are university, uh, there are administrators who are panderers. I know all that. But I don't think that's the basic dynamic. I think it's different. Look, universities in the Western world have always trained people for law, ministry, um, medicine, and university teaching itself. Um, some writers talk about the past as if that weren't the case, as if once upon a time universities engaged in pure liberal arts education with no view as to what anybody was going to do with this. But that's just not so. Back into the medieval universities, they were training people for, for ministry, for the clergy, for law, for medicine, and for university. They were, they were perpetuating themselves for university teachers. And the reason that those were singled out medicine, ministry, university, teaching, law, was that these were the so-called learned professions of the day. Um, Knowledge-intensive professions. There were other professions that required substantial knowledge, I think immediately of architecture, but until fairly recently, architecture did not have a place in the university. Budding architects uh, went through a Apprentice training, they apprenticed themselves to established architects, and that's how they acquired the knowledge that was necessary to um, uh, be an architect. Um, apart from having gone to college and learned some physics and mechanics and so forth. Um, so I think, what do you think? I think what happened then in the 20th century, uh, increasingly so in the latter part of it, is that many more professions and occupations became knowledge intensive. And furthermore, knowledge-intensive in such a way that it was almost impossible to pick it all up in apprentice situations. And so, as I see it, universities responded to this. Um, and if they hadn't responded to it, some other institution would have arisen to respond to this new requirement. And those institutions would have looked awfully much like universities. In fact, you would have been hard put to to know why they weren't universities. So, so I see, I see this that you know some writers on the collapse of the contemporary university lament and so forth, as uh, this increase in vocational training as the response to that dramatic change in our society. Once upon a time, if you wanted to go into business, you just went into business and learned it from your dad or your uncle or something like that. You can still do some of that. But if you want to go into um, larger businesses, you go to Harvard Business School. And um, that's why there is such a thing as Harvard Business School. Um, the result is, of course, that the university really is far more intertwined with the job market and with the direct needs of the economy than it was in the past. That's true, and it's that intertwinement that 
songwriters bemoan. Um, but if my analysis of it is right, it's, it's not pandering on the part of administrators as the basic dynamic, but responding to the increase in knowledge-intensive um, occupations within our society. And I think it's, well, <laughs> good or bad, I think it's in that, the inevitable response to this. What, what else would you expect? Oh, and I've got a note here. And while I'm on the point, let me say that the American university system as a whole, maybe exceptions, but as a whole, remains far more independent of the economy and the polity than are the European systems. I worked in the Dutch system for a while, and I know the British system very well. We are far more independent of the politicians and of the economy than are the European systems, which have a ministry of education, uh, which is responsible for the entire edu educational program in the Netherlands and Britain, and government funding funds the institutions, and the government people want to see that, well, they've got their own views as to how that money is best spent. Um, there's no government official telling my university, Yale, how it's supposed to spend this money. I mean, there's some threats involved and so forth, but there's no, there's no minister. When I try to explain to Europeans, we don't have a minister of education. We don't have a national minister of education. And we don't, in the strict sense, even have state ministries, ministries of education. They're, they're baffled. How can you, how can you have a system of education without there being a minister in charge of it? Well, Come and visit. <laughs> I guess the best answer. So, so the decentralization, the radical decentralization, is really the, the issue of American education, has I think been a, actually a great blessing, um, preserved us from lots of follies of the Europeans. The old University of Leiden in the Netherlands, which has historically been one of the great institutions for study of the classics. The Minister of Education in the Netherlands decided that they could only afford, I think, three out of their 12 major universities could afford a classics department in only three of the 12, and decided to abolish it from Leiden because it didn't quite fit into a geographical distribution scheme. This just seems to me, seems to me utterly, utterly mad. I mean, this is, this is an example of the economy running things, right? The economy and the, and the politicians running things. Okay. But having taken note of this rise of vocational training within the, vocationally oriented education within the universities, I'm going to set it on the shelf. It's, it's an important fact of what's going on, more in some universities, less in others. Um, but it's not so clear to me that it's got much to do with our topic. Okay, so here it goes. So I received my Ph.D. from Harvard in 1956. Most of you here were not even born then. Um, and in retrospect, it's clear to me, it wasn't at the time, in retrospect, it's clear to me that a certain self-understanding of what does or should go on in the university ruled the roost in my day in the Harvard philosophy department. That self-understanding of what does or should go on in the university uh, is now rejected by many and questioned by others. It has not disappeared. But I do think it's clear that it's lost the hegemony, let me say, that it had 50 years ago when I was being educated. And that's part, a big part, of what makes the university today very different from what it was then. It understands itself differently. Well, I don't know that it has much of a self-understanding anymore. 
the old self-understanding has disappeared, is, is a better way to put it. Let me highlight two aspects of what I'm calling its self-understanding. In the first place, back in my day, and still to some extent, but less so, back in my day, there was a pecking order among the disciplines, a hierarchy, and everybody knew what it was. This is how it went. Some academic disciplines were thought to practice what was called the scientific method, to practice it. And those disciplines, along with mathematics, were at the top of the hierarchy. Down below them, right below them, were the disciplines that were thought to be on the way, if they did things right, to practicing the scientific method. And there we had, I see Dave, Dave Richardson there, there we had economics. If, if economists did things right, they would, you know, they might thinkably move, move up into the top level. Economics, sociology, political science, psychology. And so in my day at Harvard, of the philosophers who were in the same building as some of the psychologists, a great deal of discussion as to how psychology could become a science and everybody knew what you meant by science. It was what supposedly the physicists were doing and the chemists and the biologists. Okay. That was the second rung. And down below those, social sciences, which if they did things right, would be on the way to practicing the scientific method, down below them were those disciplines that showed no prospect whatsoever of ever practicing the scientific method. And these were literary studies especially, and history, Though there were some arguing that history could, in principle, be beefed up to become a, a science of history, the science of history. Um, but nobody, almost nobody, thought that literary studies could ever become, could ever practice the scientific method. I'm a, a very few exceptions who thought that you could do sort of stimulus response studies on literature and that that was somehow, <laughs> somehow, somehow a relevant study of literature. But that, that now, um, you might think that philosophy was also way down there with literary studies, but not so. Um, the idea of the, was this in my day. The business of philosophy it was, said, was said to be to study the logic of the sciences. That was the core business of philosophy, to study the logic of the sciences. And more generally, to engage in an analysis of concepts and arguments. And thus understood, philosophy was understood to be dealing with necessary truths, relationship of concepts and validity and validity of arguments was a matter of necessary truths. And hence, lo and behold, it was up there with mathematics. Didn't look like that, but really was. Might occur to some of you in this audience to ask where theology was in this scheme. It was nowhere. It was down beneath. It, uh, it was worse than literary well, it wasn't that people thought it was worse than literary studies. They simply paid it no attention. Okay. I don't want to exaggerate. There were people at the time, I recall, who protested this hierarchy, especially, as you would expect, people down in the lower rungs. <laughs> but they all realized that it was this hierarchy that they were protesting. I mean, they didn't. Uh, that was clear to everybody. For reasons we could talk about, their protests came to nothing, I think it's fair to say. Um, their protests tended to be scattershot. 
and to offer no co- coherent alternative self-understanding. That's why they didn't come to anything. No, no coherent alternative was offered. That was the picture, packing order. Um, the more senior people among you can check me up on this, but that's what it was, right? And it hasn't died out entirely. Okay. So, scaled in terms of whether they were or could practice the scientific method. My second point concerns how the scientific method was understood. And here let me just highlight two features of how in my day it was commonly understood. In the first place, it was thought that the heart of the scientific method was the formulation and testing of hypotheses. The testing to take place by appeal to sense experience. Or, and this is a matter of great controversy, introspection. Um, some people in psychology saying that you could appeal to introspection. A lot of them saying the behavior is saying that you could not appeal to introspection. So, sense experience and or testimony of introspection. People were already sharply distinguishing the formulation of hypotheses from the testing. Uh, in my day, they were already saying it didn't matter how you got your hypotheses. If they occurred to you in a dream, who cares? Uh, you're walking in the woods. makes no difference. Uh, it's the testing that's crucial. The old 18th century view that science should avoid hypotheses and just offer inductive generalizations had died out pretty much under the pressure of theoretical physics, which is not just induction, but highly hypothetical. Okay. And the big dispute in my day, 50 years ago, was over the general character of the testing of these hypotheses, by reference to sense experience and or introspection. And there were, the dispute in my day was between the classical logical positivists, who held that you have to look to see whether your hypotheses are verified or confirmed by sensory experience and the followers of Karl Popper, who thought that what you do is look to see whether sense experience falsifies your hypotheses. So it was a big dispute between the confirmationists and the falsification theory people. That's how people understood the scientific method. The second feature I want to highlight of how the scientific method was understood is this, closely connected to the first. The scientific method was understood as a generically human employment of our human capacities. You just had to be human. Here was the picture. When you enter the academy, you are to throw off and leave in the narthex all your diverse identities as male, as female, as American, as Greek, as, as whatever, as Christian, as Muslim, you shed them all, all these narrative identities, self-identities, you leave them in the entryway, and you do your best to enter the academy simply as a human being who has sensory capacities, capacities for, art, uh, for analyzing arguments, capacities for becoming aware of necessary truths, and so forth, just qua human. The idea was that all of us fail in that to some extent, But when you're inside the halls of science, when you fail to some extent, then the other person points out to you, 
Ray, you're talking like a Christian there. You didn't, you didn't, this is a human enterprise, right? It's not a Christian enterprise. You didn't, you didn't shed that in the narthex. So it was, that was the general picture. That these human, generic human capacities are enough to engage in the scientific enterprise. Um, and there was a kind of vision behind this, okay? So, so you've got to see the visionary quality of it to understand its power. Here, amidst all our human disagreements, it's possible for us to engage in a, or, or be on the way to engaging in a consensus enterprise. That, that was thought to be the, the worth of it. In the midst of all our disagreements, here, the scientific method, we found a way to get on the way towards a consensus enterprise with, with due acknowledgement that we fail and the other person corrects us and so forth, but it was self-correcting in that way. Okay. So I think that one of the big changes that has occurred in the university over these intervening 50 years is that that self-understanding of the academic enterprise has been shaken. I would exaggerate if I said that it has been destroyed. I think it's fair to say that among philosophers it has been destroyed, but I don't think it's correct to say that it's been destroyed in general. People keep calling that to my attention when I overstate the matter. But it has been shaken. And as I say, I think no philosopher anymore, very few, will think that it has any substantial intellectual underpinnings remaining for it. And as I read the history of the situation, there were two developments especially, two developments especially, that shook it, shook that self-understanding. And they happened pretty much simultaneously. So here's my reading of what happened. Um, for one thing, some people who were trained in history, philosophy, and physics, all three of those, and that's crucial, a few people who were trained simultaneously in history, philosophy, and hard science, looked at how indubitably good science actually worked, as historians looked at how good science actually worked, looked at episodes of reputable science, and concluded that in many cases, it did not follow the pattern of the so-called scientific method. Um, I don't know that I can communicate how it's... I mean, this seems so bland when I say it now. Look, when I was a grad student at Harvard, we talked all the time about the scientific method, but by and large, we never looked at science. We knew in advance what the scientific method was. What in heaven's name was the point of actually looking at it? Okay, it was when Thomas Kuhn and Feyerabend, Paul K. Feyerabend and, and Emory Lakatos actually looked at episodes of what anybody would say was reputable science as, as people trained in history and philosophy and um, the relevant science. And Kuhn saying, well, the standard view fits fairly well for what he called normal science, but it doesn't seem to fit at all well for what he called revolutionary science. That this... I mean, it's hard for me to <laughs> communicate it, but this had a revolutionary impact. Um, as I was suggesting, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, became the most famous of all these endeavors. Now, it would have been possible to respond to Kuhn by saying, when it, supposing that Kuhn got it right, that he, that he picked out certain episodes and they just don't fit the self-understanding of the scientific method. Suppose he's right about that. 
You could have gone in one or the other of two ways. You could have said, so much the worse for that science. It doesn't fit the accepted paradigm. Or you could have gone the, the other way and said, so much for the established philosophy of science. Nobody said so much the worse for the science. Nobody said so much the worse for, for the Einstein revolution. Um, everybody said we've got to rethink what we've been chattering about by way of the scientific method. Okay. Now, what might have emerged from those discussions in the 60s was an alternative consensus view as to the nature of the scientific method that did not happen, and it has not happened. Uh, there isn't. I mean, you know, studies of <laughs> science still go on by philosophers, but there isn't any, anything like that old um, view as to what is the scientific method. The other thing that took place, that was one thing that took place. The other place, thing that took place pretty much simultaneously um, was the internal collapse of logical positivism. Now, some of you don't even know what that is anymore. Um, when I was a grad student, logical positivism appeared to us to be the most, well, was the most powerful philosophical movement around. It was, in fact, on its death. Bed. But it certainly did not appear at the time to be on a step that appeared to be in terrific health. Um, logical positivism is often presented in a sort of dry, logical fashion. But to understand its appeal to people, you've got to understand its visionary quality. Behind the positivists was this conviction. Science is the road to the future. Natural science is the road to the future. That was at the heart of what grip the logical positivism. Now, once you've said that, natural science is humanity's future, the obvious next question is, well, how do I pick out natural science from all the other stuff that sits in Harvard's library? The logical positivist view that is, as a relevant question is one of their principal questions, and so they engaged in what they call the, the, the demarcation endeavor. How do you demarcate? The good stuff, in which humanity's future is rightly placed, from the bad stuff. And there are examples of the bad stuff was always what they call metaphysics and theology. Uh, and, and so they would quote what they took to be gobbledygook sentences from metaphysicians of the contemporary world or the prior world. And, uh, that God's essence is to be. Um... So you want to place humanity's future in something like that? Um, that was the idea. <laughs> okay. So the endeavor to find a principle of demarcation. And as the more senior among us remember, the proposal was a criterion of verification. And this was the criterion, a linguistic criterion. Um, you have expressed some, you have expressed something with meaning when you utter a sentence. If and only if what you said is empirically verifiable or analytically true or false. If and only if what you said is empirically verifiable. The Popperians were in the way of saying empirically disconfirmable, falsifiable. Or it's analytically true or false, such as all bachelors are unmarried. Standard offers example of an analytic truth. So... The next project for the positivist was absolutely clear. 
and what constitutes verification. They saw that as a problem that they had to address. And, this, and what they're tr attempting to do is to give us the logic of the scientific method. And the reason positivism collapsed is, is a logical positivism is, is, is utterly fascinating, I think. It collapsed internally. And here's why. When the positivists formulated the criterion for verification tightly enough to keep theology and metaphysics out, it proved to keep vast stretches of theoretical science out as well. And when they formulated it um, broadly enough to allow theoretical physics and so forth in, it turned out that virtually all metaphysics and theology got in. And so it was this seesaw enterprise that eventually they simply gave up on, uh, utterly astonishing in some ways. About three years after I graduated, uh, it, it, it simply simply died of its own inability to, of, of its own acknowledged inability to formulate its, to, to meet its, its, its fundamental intellectual challenges. Okay. Um, I think it was then the, the combination of the collapse of positivism and the Kuhnian, Feyerabian studies of actual episodes in philosophy. It was that combination that, that unsettled the old picture and, um, People said, scientific method? Well, you can make some generalizations about it, but nobody has any neat formula for what, for what that is. Um, okay, so I think that makes our situation very different today from what it was 50 years ago. There's nobody in any philosophy departments anymore doing the old talk about the scientific method and trying to formulate it. I mean... You don't hear it in Cornell's department, I'm sure, and you don't hear it in any others. Now for the second big change that I've lived through. The university of my grad school days disenfranchised a great many members of American society. There were almost no women. I was admitted along with 23 other grad students to Harvard. The, the, that size was astonishing. But anyway, 23, one was a woman. And none, zero, were people of color. There were almost no women, almost no African Americans. In the early 1950s, almost no Jews. The first Jew got into Yale's, Yale's philosophy department in the 50s, always. And nobody but nobody who openly identified himself or herself as gay. We were, with rare exceptions, white males. Things are profoundly different today. And I think that it was probably the civil rights movement that was the initial instigator of the change. As the disenfranchised got a voice in society, they also began to get a voice in the university. And eventually they reached a critical mass. And they, as you know, began saying that what we white males had billed as generically human learning did not look all that generically human to them. It looked, and there were famous episodes here, it looked quite male to them, and quite white to them, and quite European to them, and so forth. 
Here, too, you could have had a number of responses. The previously disenfranchised could have come on board and could have demanded that the university live up to its professed ideal of becoming generically human. And some did say that, at first especially. Uh, philosopher at Yale, Ruth Marcus, a terrific logician philosopher, basically took that policy. She said, I can do philosophy as well as you guys and stop, stop, um, stop your prejudice against me. So she fought like a man and won most of her battles. So some did say that. But a lot of them began instead to argue for the legitimacy of what I'm going to call perspectival learning. The legitimacy within the university of perspectival learning, not generically human, but perspectival. And some began to argue that all learning is, when you look deep, necessarily perspectival. And so it is that we now have feminist studies programs, African-American studies programs, gay studies programs, and on and on and on. Let me assure you, if when I was a grad student at Harvard, somebody had proposed feminist philosophy, they would have been greeted with stares of incredulity. What are you talking about? Or if they understood what you were talking about, they would have thought it as just biased philosophy. Why not just be a human philosopher? Why be a feminist? Why do this biased thing of feminist philosophy? That would have been the response. But nobody did propose feminist philosophy in my day. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't on the screen. The rise of perspectival learning in the American Academy has pretty much coincided, I suppose, with the emergence of deconstruction as a philosophical movement. But I think, in fact, there's no connection between the two. No intrinsic connection between a perspectival understanding of the academic enterprise and philosophical deconstructionism. Though, in the minds of a lot of people, the two are connected. A sort of parenthetical comment. People located like myself in the neo-Calvinist tradition have espoused a perspectival understanding of learning for more than a century now, without ever, long before Derrida was on the scene and without becoming Nietzschean. As one would expect, some members of my tradition then have seen the emergence of perspectival learning in the academy as an open opening for Christian perspectival learning in the academy. I share that view. But I think that some people, like my good friend George Marsden, have been overly sanguine and hopeful on the point. Here's what I mean. It's true. If you allow feminist scholars into your philosophy department, it's hard to see what basis you would have for keeping Christian scholars out. True. But it's my experience that here we tap into fears and resentments of long standing that we should not ignore. Women have never enjoyed hegemony in the academy. Christians, until fairly recently, did. And nobody, or almost nobody, sees women as a threat. A lot of people face it, see Christians, or certain kinds of Christians anyway, as a threat. So, so you see what I'm saying, that yes, there's a, 
a kind of theoretical structural opening, but don't be naive about lingering fears, resentments, worries, and so forth. Let me close my talk and then open it up for discussion by commenting on one final change in the academy, this one more recent. Um, one of the grand narratives that has shaped the mentality of intellectuals in the modern West is that modernization yields secularization. Modernization yields secularization. The most profound exponent of this narrative was the great, great German sociologist of a century ago, Max Weber. Here's how ever so briefly Weber thought. Weber believed that a hallmark of a modernized society was that society became differentiated, his word, differentiated into a number of distinct spheres, each shaped by its own distinct value. For example, he said that in the modern world, economic activity is unraveled from the household. Once upon a time, you couldn't unravel them. Economic activity is unraveled from the household, from the church, and so forth. It becomes its own sphere of activity. And, on Weber's view, the economic sphere is governed by profit. That's what the, the value that shapes it. And it was Weber's view that as this differentiation takes place, distinct art world, distinct economic world, distinct legal world, distinct bureaucratic world, and all of that, into all these different spheres, as that takes place, religion gets squeezed out of public life into the private life. Once the economy is a distinct sphere and pursues profit, but what's religion going to do there was Weber's thought. So that public life becomes secularized. Weber tended to stop the story there. Others take it further and say that once it's become privatized, once public life has become secularized and religion has been put into the private, it's going to disappear as a relic of what humanity once was. Weber tended not to take that last step. Um, that narrative no longer looks plausible. It no longer looks plausible to the average person. And I think what's interesting is that most sociologists also, theoretical sociologists also no longer find it plausible. Admittedly, if you do not let your eye wander beyond Northwest Europe, Holland, France, Germany, England, you'll think it's plausible. But as soon as your eye wanders beyond that, you're going to say, what are you talking about? One of my sociology colleagues at the University of Virginia, the head of the institute of which I'm a fellow, in fact, argues that, <laughs> James argues that fundamentalism, modern fundamentalism, instead of being understood as a relic of a former day, should be understood as a response to modernization. It adopts the character it has because it's part of a modernized world. I think that's plausible and interesting. So, unless my ear is wrong, when here is it said in more and more quarters today that the university has to begin to take religion seriously, it can no longer ignore it on the assumption that it's just going to wither away. Why bother? There's still the worries that it's irrational and all of that. And when here is it said in more and more quarters today, if my ear is right, ear is right, 
that religion explains human what human beings do. It's not just an epiphenomenon that has to be explained, but it itself explains in good measure what, what, what people do. Where these winds will blow, we don't know yet, um, in my view, or how strongly they will blow. But it is a change from how things were when I entered. Um, well, there you have it. Uh, changes I've lived through with the attempt to characterize what are we talking about when we talk about living in the contemporary university. Um, and to say what I said at the beginning, my own belief is that when people look back 50 years from now, they are going to say that these 50 years, the latter part of the 20th century, represented an extraordinarily drastic flux of changes with, with as to what goes on in the contemporary Western university. Sometimes, Talk too long, yes, but some time for questions. Comments, additions?